Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm your host, Heather Shea. Today, we will be exploring the ancient Persian religion, Zoroastrianism. It may have originated as early as 4,000 years ago. Your hosts are Reverend Dr. Jose Roman and Reverend Arda Artez with Ferzin Patel, a Zoroastrian community leader. Zoroastrianism is one of the world's oldest religions. There are said to be today about 200,000 followers of this ancient faith, many of them living in India or Iran. The most important text of the religion are those of the Avesta, which includes the writings of the prophet Zoroaster, also known as Zarathustra, the religion's major spiritual teacher. One of the world's first monotheistic faiths, Zoroastrianism is said by some scholars to be defined by a dualistic cosmology of good and evil. That is a somewhat interesting idea that, um, that we will be exploring, whose truth we'll be exploring together. It also has a theology that predicts the ultimate victory of good over evil. The Oastrians worship a deity of light and goodness and wisdom, Ahura Mazda. The contrasting force to Ahura Mazda is drudge, falsehood or deceit, controlled by Angra Manu. In Zoroastrianism, the primary purpose in life is to be among those who renew the world, those who make the world progress towards perfection. Zoroastrianism was among the world's first religions to teach ideas such as judgment after death, heaven and hell, and free will. Religious scholars agree that Zoroastrianism may have influenced a host of other religions and spiritualities, such as Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and Buddhism. So let's jump right in. Who are the Zoroastrians? So that's a, that's a big loaded question. The, Zo- <laughs> the Zoroastrians uh, come from an ancestry which hails from uh, Iran originally. But it stretched all the way from the boundaries of China in the Penjikant Mountains all the way to the west, to Turkey and Greece. And it really flourished um, in the Sasanian and the Achmanian time. And it was the original uh, Persian official religion of the Persian Empire. And it was not only thought of as the first monotheistic religion, but it posed such an influence on other religions itself. Mm -hmm. It was the first religion to really profess uh, the idea of heaven and hell, um, 
good and light, darkness, and um, really absorb the notion that um, the ecology and living amongst nature was essential to having uh, a bountiful life that reaches ultimately to heaven's gates, or what we would call. So the Zoroastrians have evolved over many, many centuries. Currently, there's about 200,000 in the world today. Um, they've migrated to different places. Primarily, there are about 25,000 in Iran. The other uh, countries that have uh, Zoroastrians are in India, and they are known now as the Parsis. Uh, these Parsis have uh, immigrated out of persecution from the Arab invasion. And they came to India to settle in hopes that they could continue their, their practice of their religion. Primarily through uh, proselytization. You know, that when Zoroaster started um, prophesizing and going throughout and trying to get people to understand his message, it was an open religion. Anyone could join. It was a matter of free choice which is one of the tenets of what he was trying to convey, that each person, man or woman, has the choice to come and understand what he was speaking about. Mm. Over this time and centuries, through also different ideas of religious practice, like the Arab invasion, the small groups that needed to convert were converted. Otherwise, they were sentenced to death. And even to this day, in that current region, there is a threat that you have to practice the religion in a quiet way. And so there are people that are still, you know, in Iran that um, do not wear the, the, the typical sadra and kasti, which are the garments that are worn underneath our clothing as an um, identity to, be a, to being a Zoroastrian. They have to hide, do it in hiding. So actually, when you go into a fire temple, everybody normally wears the shirt and the thread on an everyday basis. However, in Iran, they hang the sadra and the kasti outside the temple because once you leave the temple, you don't want to be known as having the identity of a Zoroastrian because it could be a threat to your life. So, so who was Zarathustra? So Zarathustra was, he was our prophet. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is said that uh, it started about 3,000 years ago. He was born close to the Ariel Sea, up in near Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. Um, he was uh, the son of a herdsman, and he himself belonged to the priestly class. At that time, there were many, many different uh, pagan religions happening, mm-hmm. and so they, and, and it was very tribal in its nature, and so he uh, was part of that. And he um, sought out a different message. He knew something was not right. It did not sit right with him. That there was destruction and disease and um, uh, deployment of um, a message that wasn't clear to him. So at the age of 30, he went out and he looked for something more meaningful. He left home actually at the age of 22, and went for 10 years in search of something more meaningful. And it was found high up on a mountain, he went in that region. 
And as he was bathing in the water, some essence of what we called an Amisha Spenta. An Amisha Spenta is one of six natural, um, bountiful essences of what Ahura Mazda calls uh, the requirements that each one of us has in the, in our, that we embody. And these Amisha Spenthas comprise themselves of Asha, which is righteousness, devotion, love. So the Amisha Spentha of wisdom came to him. And they're almost looked at like archangels, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is something that Ahura Mazda, which is our definition of God, is what we call God. Ahura Mazda means um, great lord of wisdom. And so the Amisha Spentha came to Zarathustra and brought him to Ahura Mazda. And he received God's message of being a righteous person, that the true path to happiness and goodness is through the path of righteousness. And so God bestows all this knowledge onto him. And he goes back and he tries to invoke his people to follow in this path. And it was very difficult because of all the different religions that taking place and the paganism at that time. It wasn't until King Vishtaspa, who was the ruler at that time, endorsed Zarathustra's message. And apparently he had gone there to, to heal his horse. And the king had said, tell me more and give me some enlightenment. And that, through his message, was something that the king could relate to. And so started Zoroastrianism and the major thought within the, the Persian Empire. It became the state religion at one point. Yes. So as, as time went, uh, the influence that Zoroastrianism had was because, you know, the priests at that time were very well versed, not only in religious thought, but also in medicine, politics, social issues. Sometimes they would be the mediators, mm-hmm. like lawyers like that we have. <laughs> so they were very influential on the king and how the workings of the um, palace and, and the kingdom was going to be run. So these priests had tremendous influence on them. So it's not unusual that um, when they speak of, when we were talking about this earlier, uh, the three kings were actually? They were actually magi, and they, they were actually priests. They came from a priestly class. They were uh, not kings, actually, but uh, priests, and the word magic comes from magi. And uh, the magi had an envision that there would be a messiah, a new messiah. And so they did go to Bethlehem to seek out out of curiosity as, as to what this could be. And they brought frankincense and myrrh, which is actually what Zoroastrians practice in, in putting in their fire. We light our fire with six pieces of frankincense and myrrh, which is we call sukkar and loban. And the, these essences are sweet wood, the sweetest part of the wood that burns. 
And so it convenes and, and has a connection to, with God. It's extraordinary to see that connection with Zoroastrianism into Christianity. And what other practices, uh, what other religions and spiritualities do you see the influence and the connection to Zoroastrianism? Being someone who is very interested in learning about comparative religions myself, um, I see it within Buddhism, uh, the essence of time and how time flows in and out. And um, I also see it uh, in Islam, and, um, you know, there, I think there's some universal elements that speak truth to every religion. Um, and these, these truths, there's a collective co- consciousness that we all hold. And this consciousness comes into light when we each bring about a true definition of what Asha, in which is the tenet of Zoroastrianism, which is righteousness in finding the truth, that not only just like, the truth that we see as, uh, you know, reality in the physical form, but also in the spiritual form, in the ethical form, in the moral form. And that is what each Zoroastrian aspires to, is to reach that. Speak a little bit to this idea that Zoroastrianism is extremely dualistic and that there is Ahura Mazda, but there's also, if you will, an evil force that is essentially almost comparable, and that therefore is this, it's almost this yin-yang approach to spirituality. How true is that, or how much is that a misunderstanding? So uh, a lot of time, you know, people associate uh, Zoroastrianism with being a monotheistic religion, but some have called it dualistic in its approach from a cosmic point of view. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the ideology of Zarathustra's teachings... He teaches that Ahura Mazda is the only creator of good. Ahura Mazda does not create evil. Evil is a sense, a part of every single uh, one of us sitting here today. The word um, angra meniyu, angra meniyu means the um, angry mind, okay, Mm -hmm. or thought. So each one of us brings to it from our own lack or a space of uh, fear. So anger comes about from the essence of not having good. Okay, so it's a depletion of good. It doesn't exist in its full form in terms of equating. So you can look at it as an abacus. So we look at the good, good, good. But then I thought I had a really bad thought about that. So, okay, take one down, take one notch down. That doesn't mean that evil exists. It means that there's a frustration of penetrating through the good. So many times philosophers and theologians will talk about Zoroastrianism as a dualistic religion. You don't see it that way. I don't see it that way, no. Mm. And I think most practicing Zoroastrians tend to have a very optimistic look, so it, it outlook. And so we don't really focus on the essential evil. We don't even, I don't even think, essentially look at it from a, a standpoint of focus. All, the focus is always on the good, on the so, benevolence. So the universe is created by a totally benevolent, good and perfect God. 
hence the universe is itself totally benevolent, good, and perfect, Mm -hmm. except that in that universe there is this at times, if you will, a space empty of anything, Mm -hmm. and it is within that space where evil can arise. Correct. So there comes a a space of lack Lack. when we have fears, when we attach, and and it comes into a physical form, and it comes into a spiritual form. So let me give you an example. When we think of these tsunamis and these hurricanes and these people say, oh, it's God, you know, he's, he's reprimanding all of us humans. But from a Zoroastrian's point of view, God is, is benevolent. You know, the, these things happen because it's, it's nature. It mm-hmm. comes in its natural form. We, as humans, look at it from a negative point of view because out of fear. We fear what will happen to us, that world will end. But these natural elements have to happen. Mm-hmm. From a Zoroastrian point of view, it's, it's meant to happen. It will happen. How we look at it is very important. Is Ahura Mazda God a person? It's an entity. There is reflective um, interpretation of it being a he. I think we, uh, in nature, just automatically go to conditioning and Mm -hmm. call it he. Um, But it is neither man nor woman. It has no gender. It has no form. It's the wise Lord. So it's wisdom. It comes from a word of, world of wisdom. What are the um, core tenets okay. and beliefs? So uh, Zoroastrian uh, belief system came from the Amishasbenthas, which I spoke about earlier. These are the essence of all humanity, all nature, all creation. And God created these entities. They represent, are represented in the physical and in the spiritual again. I'll give you an example. Uh, God created the sky, water, fire, humans, animals, plants. And so those Amishasbenthas are reflective of also having spiritual characteristics. They represent devotion, love, wisdom, truth, and... Mm balance and justice. And so these each combine together and create uh, what we have as a trifecta. So you, you may see like the Ten Commandments. We have, we, I call the trifecta, which are humata, hukta, and huvareshta. This is the Avestan language of the ancient Persians. And that means good thoughts lead to good words, which lead to good deeds. And every human is destined to follow this in order to seek a final uh, immortality in heaven. In your biography, it talked about your interest and, and devotion, really, to uh, mindfulness. And you just said something that really is deeply connected to that idea. Namely, you are committed to the cultivation of your mind, right? Good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Speak a little bit to that. Sure. So when anybody goes through um, a situation, the first reaction is usually a physical reaction, Mm -hmm. correct? Oh, yeah. You know, when someone (laughs) triggers you, you're like, "Mm, 
you know, you get it all in your stomach. So we must pause and reflect upon this. And when we act with thought, we can leave elements of ourselves to connect back to that. And it's very important for us to realign ourselves back to a a way of processing it through our minds, but also connecting it to our hearts. So we think the thoughts, we process the thoughts to create words that will help us lead to benevolent good deeds. And so in terms of mindfulness, a lot of times we are constantly rushed, rushed, we are very reactive to anything that is going on around us. Why are we all in this universe so stressed out these days? Because there's no time. There's no time for pause. And what meditation does, or mindfulness does, is allow us the moment to reflect, which is really about thought and, and connecting to that thought. And once we connect to those thoughts, we can process and reflect with somebody to, to talk about it, to reflect through a good word. And that good word ultimately leads us to trying to do a good deed. Are there specific practices within the tradition to help cultivate this ideology? Or is it something that you're kind of taught as a child? So as we're growing up in a Zoroastrian home, uh, we, we are taught you know, these, these three words. I mean, every Zoroastrian knows the trifecta of, of um, our practice. And so um, as a child growing up, you are eventually brought into the fold um, with uh, initiation ceremony called the Novjot, which means new member. Uh, the Novjot ceremony is uh, a very important time for any Zoroastrian to enter into. It's a commitment to his righteousness and spreading righteousness and truth. And so at the age of seven to about 11, uh, children commit to this, whether they want to or not. When, when you hear a Muslim speak of Allah, mm-hmm. a Christian speak of the Trinity, um, a Jew speak of Elohim, is to you those different names for Ahura Mazda? Is there one God? Many names? Exactly. Okay. Yes. And the, the God of Ahura Mazda is representative through wisdom. Right. right. And through these Amisha Spenthas, his essence, through devotion and love and um, uh, fairness and representative of nature as well. You refer to the temples as fire temples, correct? Yes. There is a remarkable symbolic meaning of fire to Zoroastrians. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Fire is the quintessential symbol of Zoroastrianism. It is the one element that provides warmth. It provides uh, a vision of seeing light and truth. And we don't worship uh, it. In fact, some people say we are fire worshipers, but we are not. It's like a Christian's praying to the cross. So it's a symbol. 
it's a path to conveying with Ahura Mazda. And so fire is reverence to God and to bring out light and understanding of his eternal message. What is it in this faith that you love the most? For me, I think it's the simplicity and it's the connection to three basic universal ideas and that it does not, it's a reflective religion. It does not have a prescriptive idea. There are, you know, there are rituals which are contained in the holy scriptures of the Vendidad. Uh, the Vendidad is part of the Avestan uh, book of prayers, um, as are the Gathas. The Gathas are the 17 psalms or hymns that Zoroaster had created um, through prose and poems. And those have been written down into those 17 chapters or verses. And we call them, they're very short, and we call them Haz or Hayates. And they're beautiful in their essence because they're so pure. There's nothing to misinterpret. And um, I'd like to read one for you, if you don't Ooh, mind. It's one, of the, it's one of the most uh, universal, but yet it's, it speaks volumes as to, in terms of meaning. So the message of Zarathustra is summarized in the following passage from the Gatha. Clear all is all to the man of wisdom as to the man who carefully thinks. He who upholds truth with all the might of his power, he who upholds truth to the utmost in his word and deed, and he indeed is thy most valued helper O Ahura Mazda. So you see, there's, there's a creation of truth that is so essential, but yet it's not to be contained only within the self. It is to give back to, to the world. It's to, to supplement it inside what is so important for the universe, for all of us. It's not just compounded within our own tribal unity. He was very anti-tribalism, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yes. Which is why he got in trouble for so many years. You know, no, no one wanted to buy into this idea. And this is why also it, it was so vast across the Persian Empire. And even in, in today's society, we have a group of Kurds um, up in northern Iran who are interested in coming back to their um, indigenous religion, um, as well as uh, Iranians who would like to come back and, and reconvene with it because it is where their uh, ancestry is from and their ideology. Hi, I'm Heather Shea, and we'll be back with more about Zoroastrianism in just a minute on Open Heart Conversations from the United Palace of Spiritual Arts. Please stay tuned. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back, spiritual artists. Thank you for tuning in with our special guest, Furzan Patel. Uh, Was there a caste system in, in um, 
In India, there was a caste system. I know in India, but in, in, yeah. the, in the Zoroastrian religion was... Uh, it? No. no. It didn't matter whether you were rich or poor. Um, you know, the faith speaks to all members of its, of its uh, class. What about women? The role of women in Zoroastrianism. This is another element of the religion that I admire because from the gathas where Zoroaster speaks, there is a, a quality of women that it does not, it's man and woman. There is reference in those words in the Avestan texts that there is equality. Um, women, even now today, assist the priests in the fire temple. Uh, previously, it was probably um, a kind of a dying uh, position because of um, social conditions. You know, when when we were in India, you know, because it follows more of a patriarchal lineage, mm-hmm. that element probably died down because it wasn't considered um, an appropriate position. However, there is a resurgence, and we see a lot of women priests helping they're more of assistance in the in the form of um you know helping with the fire maintaining the fire they are in the inner sanctum and it's wonderful to see that so you do have priests mm-hmm. yes we have three different kinds of priests mm-hmm. we have the high priest who is not only a priest for theology but they they learn also about history and, and um, culture and the, the elements of the language are, that are imposed. So we have high priests, we have um, what are called, um, when they are called dastours, and then we have um, ervads, who are the assistants to the priests. And then we also have um, the matabs, which, who... Um, are learning, learning the elements of becoming a priest. Mm-hmm. So women can attain the highest level of priesthood. Uh, they could. I've never seen it. It's, it's very interesting because in the Amish Aspentas, uh, which are the essence I spoke about of Zoroastrianism, three of the Amishas are females. They have female characteristics, especially the one of love and water Aban, and so they have titles and names, and so it's an equal parting of three essence and spirits, and of female and male. Mm-hmm. Balance, balance, absolutely. <laughs> now I know that we are in the midst of a holiday. Is that correct, or is the holidays just ending? So speak to some of the um, holidays that you celebrate, and what this one in particular is. Sure. So uh, we are currently coming off of uh, what we call Nauruz, and Nauruz means new day. It is the um, viral, it's a celebration of the viral equinox, where light is coming back and uh, overpowering darkness. And we celebrate that uh, traditionally on the first day of spring, which is either March 20th or March 21st. And this is also known as the Persian New Year. However, uh, it was originated by uh, Zarathustra to um, honor um, wisdom and to give light to bringing truth. And so this has been carried on, not only um, in Iran, but we see elements of it throughout that region, through Central Asia and in Turkey and Azerbaijan and all different other places of worship because they, they see the element of um, the meaning so powerful. 
and uh, and it speaks to again back to nature. It talks about um, you know the bringing of new beginnings. The idea of character and righteousness, the, the evolution of one's individual character and righteousness are absolutely central yeah. to this faith, Yes, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's taught from an early age and um, you come across, you know, there's times in our lives where you get, have challenges and it's, it's, always, um, it's always thought that you have to just look deep within. And that's not always easy sometimes, mm-hmm. you know. There's always poses those questions of, am I being true to myself? Am I being too righteous? <laughs> you know, so, and, um, so I think that uh, when, we, when we're taught as children, uh, we're taught as we are human too. We make mistakes. We're not taught as we have to be this perfect person all the time. It's about extending and using your good mind to make those choices. We have to, we have to suffer for, for any mistakes and bad choices. And Ahura Mazda has given us free will. He, he has given it to us. We you have to use it. And that is the point of, of I think, the most important point that uh, Zarathustra makes, is that the mind has been given to us. Question. Don't go to condition you know, question things. He got a lot of slack for it, you know, when he questioned the tribal ideology. And so when he, when he did that, it, it que- he was the first one to question what's going on and, and went out and, in search of that until he was satisfied. There's a sense in Zoroastrianism that um, everything is holy. Preserving nature is one of the fundamental elements of our religion. In fact, religious scholars refer to Zoroastrianism as the first ecological religion ever. And that that I have read numerous times. That is correct. Even within our ritual practices uh, of purification, of um, even death upon death, we give back to nature in our our burial um, uh, where we we go to the Tower of Silence and rather than impurifying the earth, we don't bury. We give back to nature and we actually have uh, birds come down and, and take the body away. That probably sounds controversial. A lot of people are probably just, you know, kind of can't fathom that, but mm-hmm. it's logical. It's ecological, right? Yeah. It's a circle of life. It's logical and ecological. Right, right. Yeah. We actually, um, in our temple right now, um, it's so prevalent that we not take from, you know, the earth and, and use energy sources. So we, one of the first things that we did upon building our current temple in Pomona, New York, was to put solar in t- on, on the building. That was very, very key. So we were self-sustained, that we were not using uh, anything that we did not need to use. And um, even with the creating the building, it was like everything was motion sensor so that lights weren't, energy wasn't being used mm-hmm. up. It was about being mindful of it and, and challenging each time that we needed to do something. It, it was almost like extra uh, effort to do it. But you know what? In the end, it was about the tenant of what we, our goal was, which was to preserve nature, was to preserve and, and be mindful of not, you know, destruction of it you know, protecting it. Mm. Wonderful. So you're going to share something with us. We're going to, we're going to get into the experiential portion. Um, so why don't you tell us what it is that you're going to... So what I'd like to do now is uh, share with you uh, the prayers from uh, our holy scriptures, which is the Avesta. 
The Avesta is composed in four different um, forms. The most holiest of form is the Gatha. Then you have what's called the Korda Avesta, which is the daily prayers. Prayers are similar to the faith of Islam, are spoken five times a day traditionally, uh, before waking, after shower, at noon, uh, in the uh, evening before sundown, and then again in the evening before bedtime. T- contemporarily, we typically, when we wake or after we shower, we typically remove the sadra and kasti, do our prayers, and then at night we do our prayers again. Um, it's a reminder to reconnect, not only to God, but also to within ourselves and speak of, did we seek truth today? Did we do good today? Mm-hmm. And um, during this ceremony of prayer, there are some elements of purification that we do before we engage in the prayer. So that would be to first wash your hands. When you go inside the uh, Zoroastrian temple, you would wash your hands, typically. Uh, you'd also cover your head, because when you enter into the fire temple, you don't want hair, which is considered dead, right? Mm. Dead, the hair's dead and nails are dead. So we didn't want the hair to fall into the fire. Um, and also removing your shoes, which is actually very similar to other cultures and, and Indo-Iranian practices of religious um, practice. So um, these, these things are the, the elements of going into a fire temple. Uh, now in, in America, North America, we, we actually welcome people to come and uh, visit our, our fire temples. Uh, previously in... Um, in many years ago, and even today, in, in India and some parts of uh, Pakistan, they do not allow um, outsiders um, into the fire temples. It is only reserved for uh, people of Zoroastrian faith. And part of the reason for this is because these are consecrated fires. These are fires that have been burning for you know, 3,000 years, they've been brought over from Iran, and these are the most holiest of fires. They come from uh, 16 different elements of fire. So when these fires are, were brought over from, India, from, from Iran to India, uh, someone, not by boat, they can't mix water and fire together. They had to walk along the... Mm the hills and bring it wow. down south. The uh, fire was brought to India after the exilation of um, all the Zoroastrians from Iran. And during that persecution, the Zoroastrians came over and the fire was brought. Uh, the fire is usually um, from nature, which would be a, f- a piece of fire from lightning, and then also from other tradesmen. So it would be a baker a, a blacksmith, um, the fire from the uh, body of a Brahmin, actually. Hmm. And um, so these fires are finally mixed together, and they are prayed on for about 14,000 hours, so, which is about 18 months. And those fires are contained in um, fire temples, which are similar to your cathedrals. Okay, so we have three kinds of fire temples. So those are called Atash Berams. And those fires are the holiest and the most sacred. And they can only be brought in from 
those, the description I just talked about with that 16 fires. And so there are only nine in the world. The oldest fire temple is in Yazd, Iran, and that still is uh, lit to this day. It is tended to 24 hours a day, seven days a week, religiously, and never goes out, ever, ever. And um, so that's why it is so difficult to uh, proselyze the religion because you cannot really have uh, holiest of fires within a vicinity if people are not committed to taking care of them, you know, because mm-hmm. they do need to be tended to. I am very proud to say that um, we have just last week started a second tier fire, which is in an Atash Adiran, which is the second tier, which would be like a church, church fire. And this is the first one in North America that is being tended to 24 hours a day by a group of very committed priests from 70 years old all the way down to 12 years old. Wow. Yes. Yeah, and these these people are very committed to doing this. And And now the the responsibility is to keep this fire burning for forever. Forever. Wow. Yes, that is the goal. And so uh, with the Atash Adaran, those, that's the second tier of fire temples, they need, they're required to have four different types of fires that are brought about. And then what we have are called the Dari Mares, which is the temple that I uh, work at. And those, the Dari Mare stands for Doors of Peace. And those are quite significant. They're not, they have a fire temple inside and those can be just lit by the priests uh, as needed. It is still a holy fire. Um, however, it is not tended to and can burn out on its own. So we allow the fire to, to burn out on its own. It also serves as a, as a place of, of community. So it's almost like a community center where people would come and talk to one another, learn from each other, and um, like a group gathering place. And so that's the third, or like a chapel. It's interesting because we talked about there, is, there are no services in the, in, the, in the, say, if you will, the Christian sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are activities that take place in, in the temples, correct? What does a temple li- life look like? What are temples serve, you know, to the extent that there's some activity? What does that activity look like? So, um, Zarathustra's message from Ahura Mazda was that you, you, you pray with, from an individual point of view. So, it's not communal in the sense on a daily basis. We do gather together for uh, communal prayer during the seasonal holidays. So we have what are called gumbars. And the gumbars are, again, once go back to the Amisha Spenthas, which represent water, fire, sky, plants, and animals. It also represents the seasons and nature. And during these gumbars, we have what are called jashan ceremonies. Jashan means a, it's the communal service where everyone gathers. Also during jashans, we also have them like when I, let's say I buy a new house and I want to uh, clean out the old spirit and bring in <laughs> some, some healthy good spirit. So then we have also jashans for uh, remembrance of a loved one who's passed on their year anniversary. Those, those kinds of... Um, uh, milestones are very, very important in, in the Zoroastrian faith. And we do get together where a priest will s- come to your home or they'll come to the temple, they'll light the fire, there'll be two priests uh, 
sitting next to each other or a, a group of priests, depending. And during those ceremonies, it's, it's a veneration uh, to, to get blessings, but also to remember the dead and to remember the souls that have gone to immortality. And um, it's, it's a communal. And we similarly set up a, a, a table like this to share the fruits and, and uh, benefits that, that come with, with nature providing for us. Um, and so, in that respect, we do have both. Um, it's not as often, um, but I think it's based on free will once again. It's free choice. And how you choose is, you know, consequence to what you want to put into it. So the prayer that you're about to share with us is a prayer. Is it one that would be publicly spoken or is it something that you would at home uh, on, a, on a daily basis? So this is the first prayer. Each each person or child is taught this is the first prayer, but it's the most important prayer because it talks about Asha and Asha being truth and righteousness. You're, you're praying for Asha to help guide you to doing what's right for the sake of doing right. Mm. Not that you have to do it. Not that someone told you to do it. Not that you have ulterior motives to do it, but because it is the right thing to do for the right thing to do. So I'm going to just say it for you or explain it to you. To think a good thought, to speak a good word, to do a good deed, virtue is good, is is the best thing, is the everlasting happiness, everlasting happiness that comes to him who virtuously does it for the sake of virtue, which is the best. It's simple. It's universal. It speaks volumes to what each one of us can just basically do. Thank you. Thank you. Does anyone have any questions? My question is, uh, is the religion, when coming to North America, America, has it changed at all? Usually, religions tend to modernize So has the religion changed as it came here to has America? Has it been westernized? Yeah. yeah. So, um, in terms of practice... I think that because the fire temples are such an element of communal worship and of a, a base, this is why we have started building uh, these fire temples or Dari Mares, because they're so essential to a gathering spot. You know, in, when we first came to New York, we used to meet at the UN building. And in, then in 1970, we moved to New Rochelle, which was like a house. Someone, mm. you know, it was a house and, it, you know, had an upstairs, downstairs. But it still was not our temple. Didn't, we didn't feel an affinity to, to uh, pray the same way that we did. It wasn't until we built this new fire temple that people feel a genuine uh, connection to the fire uh, and to, to uh, praying uh, with the priests and um, I think that the identity has increased tremendously because we now have these houses of worship. Um, I don't want to put you know, physical emphasis on having this because we do need to do it on an individual basis. But it's very important because we are so few and far between. I don't, I don't know a lot of Zoroastrians in my, in my social circles um, because we are so spread apart in North America. 
In India, you have communities that live together. We call them bogs. And they're almost like, um, you know, fenced off areas and, and properties where only Zoroastrians or Parsis live in. And a uh, majority of people live in those areas are very connected. They're either your cousin or you're related somehow to them because you're, they're such a small community. But in North America, I see... A, a change happening because when you're in India you take for granted what the meaning is behind some of the rituals uh, the meaning behind going back to the original ideology of Zarathustra and so what I see in North America is that migration back to connecting with nature to connecting with the elements to connecting not so much with the ritualistic uh, practice in its, in its essence there's a little shift but I, I do see a strength in, in people wanting to practice but practicing it in its original form of uh, using the Amisha Spentas and, and communicating with nature you mentioned something about lightness and darkness. What is the connection, or is there a connection, between Zoroastrianism and Manichaeism? I don't know much about Manichaeism, so I don't know if I can answer that question. Um, but I will speak on light and darkness. So um, when uh, creation in our, in, in our faith began, uh, there was the creation of, of uh, the sky, Okay, and through the sky and the sun, uh, that is where um, existence first happened in the cosmos. And uh, when we talk of druj or what are the the negative essence of the world, those were imposed uh, through darkness. And so we always come back to this battleground of trying to to force you know the druj out and bring in a, dark, a much higher light in terms of using uh, the essence of nature and spirituality and the physical form. But we're talking about three different elements of trying to compact that into one idea. So there are, it's, it's a very, it's a very um, based ideology you have to divert it between cosmology and also about you know the physical realm of uh, and ethics of light and darkness so it is it's a little different mm. so there needs to be a separation of it when we uh, migrated from Iran to India the idea when we were received by the king Jadarana who is a Hindu king he imposed some rules on the Zoroastrians when they landed. He said, what are you, you know, you're here because there was so much migration coming to India that, you know, they were trying to put you know, holds on that from happening. So there was very, they had very specific uh, rules about caste. They didn't want to mi- have people start mixing into their caste system. So one, a few rules he imposed. He said to the priests, he said, uh, you must wear our local clothes, which is the sari. So we did. You must speak our language, which is Gujarati, which was on the western um, side of India. So we adopted it. So now Parsi speak the same language. So my husband, who's sitting here, when I told my parents, oh, he speaks Gujarati, oh, great, that does, it doesn't matter what religion he is. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and then uh, the other thing was you couldn't be married uh, after sundown. You had to be married after sundown. And the other was to remain in your caste system. 
And the priest said, we can, we can do this. As long as, um, you know, you, you give us those, what will you give us, bring us back to, to our society here in India. And the priest took a bowl, he, he said, may I have a bowl of milk? And he added sugar to it. And he stirred it into the milk. And he said, we will be invisible. Do you see the sugar? We will be invisible. But we will sweeten your world. <laughs> and so after that, Parsis were always known as the sweet people because they always wanted to never to take away from what it currently always existed. They always wanted to do just do their own thing and be part and raise their own, you know, uh, children in their own uh, religion and practice freely. And so what has taken place is this ideology of you can only be married to someone who is of the Zoroastrian faith and to stay within your caste. So this idea of staying within the caste really comes from uh, an idea that was imposed upon us um, generations ago. And it still remains because it's conditioning, right? And, but if you look at Zoroaster's message in his gathas, it's open, it's universal. Anyone can join. And so when the Kurds are saying, we want to go back, come. It's okay, as long as you practice. It is a very different delineation between ethnicity, which is very important to the Parsis in India. It's very, very key because it's, they relate it to their identity. And their di- identity is very specific. Um, but that doesn't mean it has to be reflected in, in other parts of the world. And that is, it's a very controversial issue, actually, right now. What was the name of the gentleman who did the, uh, the milk and the war? He was, well, the King Jadarana was the king that received mm-hmm. them. But uh, I don't know the priest's name, actually. Okay. Yeah. But, was but, but that priest was absolutely right, because you've certainly sweetened our oh, experience thank today. You. Thank you so much. And we really do need to thank you for coming you. and sharing this magnificent tradition with us. Can we all so thank? Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to Open Heart Conversations, exclusive dialogues and musical interludes with teachers and performers from around the world's religions and spiritual traditions. Recorded at the United Palace of Spiritual Arts in New York City. To find out what's happening at the United Palace or to attend an event, please visit www.unitedpalace.org. See you soon. Open your heart, expand your mind, change the world. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry, where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org.